Father, as we sing this song and declare these truths, I pray that the doctrine that we have just sung will be a doctrine that is proclaimed through our lives day by day. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. The truth of your preeminence, the truth of your eternality, your reign over all things, that you are the one who is above all and over all and in all and through all, and that to you every name, every person, every family, every group, every nation on this world will one day bow the knee to you, either as king or as judge. You will be proclaimed as God over all. And so, Lord, I pray that even now in these moments, you would help us as those who have already bowed the knee to Christ to understand how that truth of your preeminence should be a truth that is lived out day by day. And God, through the testimony of your scripture today, help us understand the significance of pledging our allegiance to Jesus Christ, to God himself, to bowing the knee before you and and demonstrating through the consistency of our life, through the proclamation of our lips, both in secret and in public, how it demonstrates in our own hearts that we belong to you. Thank you for Jesus and his willingness to say hard things. And God, as we look into your word today, I pray that you would use your words to cut through the, the, the joints and marrow of our life and to be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart, that it would penetrate at the deepest level of who we are and where we are, that you would expose to us the areas of life that are out of step with you so that we can, in those areas as well as others, pledge allegiance to you and turn them over in submission to the king. And Father, this morning, I'm certain there are those today who do not know you as their savior. And so I pray, Lord, that through the gospel of the scripture today, that you would draw hearts to come to want to know you, to lay themselves down before you, to confess that they are sinners, to believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and because of his death and resurrection and payment of the cost of sin on the cross that they can be saved and be forgiven and be cleansed and have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus. May that be a reality today. For those who are here in our midst and those who are watching on the live stream, God, may you be preeminent in our lives today and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to Luke chapter 12. I would encourage you to turn uh, with me and with the rest of us to Luke chapter 12. If if you're using the, the Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 871. 871. Now, I'm not sure what perception you have of Jesus Christ. Like uh, the cultural perception of Jesus 
And maybe even the Sunday school version of Jesus is, a, is the kind of Jesus who is just full of affection and compassion and tenderness. He, uh, he forgives the, the woman who's been caught in adultery. He's willing to, to heal those who come to him because of their physical infirmities. Jesus doesn't pass by the the, the poor and the neglected. Jesus is, is, is accepting. Jesus is, is that safe place that we can go, right? And, and by the way, that is all true of Jesus. But the, but the version of Jesus that maybe you're unfamiliar with is the version of Jesus that we're gonna see this morning. And by the way, that version of Jesus is just as loving and desires your heart in your soul, to be drawn to him. So we're gonna to come to some very strong words of Jesus Christ today. And, and on the surface, these words seem aggressive. These words seem mean-spirited in a way. They, they seem like over the top, perhaps. They seem to, to invite a, a little bit of, of a kind of a fight in these words. That, that these, are, these are fighting words. And Jesus seems to be going after the Pharisees. But I want you to understand that the motive in the heart of Jesus is, is the same from start to finish. As we find in John chapter 114, Jesus was full of grace and truth. You can't enjoy the grace of God until and unless you're confronted with the truth of the gospel. Unless you're confronted with the truth of who you really are in the, in the presence of a holy God. Until you come to terms with your unworthiness, your wickedness, and your ungodliness, you'll never come to enjoy and experience the grace of God. And, and that's what we're gonna see in our passage today some really aggressive words. But understand in these words of Jesus, these aggressive words, there is a tenderness and in inviting the Pharisees into relationship and helping to clear the obstacles because you can't have Jesus and have your own thing. You can't pledge allegiance to Jesus and, and pledge allegiance to the world. That's what, that's what John will say in 1 John. You, you can't love the world and love the Father. It doesn't work that way. It's one or the other. So Jesus is gonna use some strong words and, and, and perhaps one of the strongest words is the word hypocrite. Have you ever been called a hypocrite? Um, I was trying to think of all the things that I've been called and which one offends me the most. That's probably the one that I get the most heated over in my heart. Like, to be called a hypocrite. Now, this word, it, it comes into the English from the Greek word Hippocrates. So you can kind of hear the similarity. Hippocrates is the Greek word. Hypocrite is our, is our English uh, transliteration. This Greek word itself is a compound word. It's made up of two Greek words that literally translate an interpreter from underneath. Interpreter from underneath, what is that supposed to mean? Well, 
The bizarre compound makes more sense when you understand that the actors in ancient Greece would use these masks to kind of play their part in the, in the performance that they would have, this theatrical performance that they would have in front of a live audience. And so the, the actor would play this part from underneath the mask, and thus we get the term Hippocrates or hypocrite, to play the part from underneath. Jesus will, will use this word and apply it in a, a very uh, cultural setting of the first century. He'll kind of redistribute this word or repurpose this word to, to speak of the Pharisees and anyone, really, who was a pretender. Anyone who was playing the part. Anyone who, especially of the religious uh, leaders in Israel, who, who seemed to have a semblance of love for God, but... but but they were just behind this mask. They were behind this pretending part. And what was really going on deep down inside, down inside was everything but what they claimed to be true on the surface. The reality is that everybody in this room has been a hypocrite at one point or the other. I might even say that all of us from day to day struggle with hypocrisy. The, the things that you claim to be true, the things you confess to be true, but, but aren't really true in your life. For example, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it says, love is patient, love is kind. Now we believe that, we know that's true, but how many of us in this room from day to day struggle with being patient, struggle with being kind. You are a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite, okay? So, so when we come to this text and we, we understand that Jesus is speaking against the Pharisees, now what's natural for us is to say, well, those stupid Pharisees, they're such hypocrites. But what we need to do is we need to turn the mirror on our own life. We need to allow these difficult, hard words to, to show up and to evaluate ourselves in relationship to what Jesus is saying because what Jesus wants for everyone in this room is for you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants your allegiance to God to be sincere, to be real, to be authentic. It only happens one way. So what Jesus is gonna do, he's gonna establish some means by which we can evaluate our lives to know whether or not we are pretending or whether or not we're sincere. What is the gauge by which you will know that you are a hypocrite? How will you come to a place of knowing where your true allegiance lies? Because eternity hangs in the balance. This is not just a, a temporary issue. This is, a, this is an issue of eternity. Where your allegiance lies and how you measure up to what Jesus will say about true allegiance will help you understand where you fit in this picture, whose kingdom in whose kingdom you belong, who you pledge allegiance to. Now, at the same time, we understand that while every one of us in this room is a hypocrite, while every one of us is, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, 23, 
all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we come to the place of recognizing who we really are, and then we come to the place of acknowledging who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us on the cross, and we bow the knee and ask for forgiveness, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that God delights in rescuing hypocrites. God delights in forgiving hypocrites. God desires to draw hypocrites into relationship with him. So these aren't the kinds of conditions that keep us out of the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not trying to push people away. He's trying to draw people to him, clearing the obstacles so you and I can enjoy a relationship with God. So look with me, if you would, as we enter into our text today, coming, kind of picking up where we left off in May, Luke chapter 12. Let me read the first three verses, and that'll set the course for the direction for our study this morning. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This morning, as you can imagine, when we're evaluating our lives and trying to to recognize or to gauge our allegiance, where does it lie? It's going to involve the totality of life. It's going to begin, as Jesus does here, by underscoring a life that is lived in private. So living in private in a way that says that Jesus matters. That's what Jesus is after. Even in the secret places of your life, in the quietness of your day-to-day, in in the spots that nobody sees, and you don't think anyone's going to find out. Those are the places, the very places, where the true person comes out. When no one sees, when no one's going to care, and you don't think anyone's watching, that's when the true person comes out. And Jesus is going to say that if you're going to have the kind of allegiance that demonstrates a loyalty to God, then you're going to live in private as if Jesus matters. There's two areas that Jesus will underscore in this passage that helps us know how that private life comes out. First, it comes out by the fact that, that you are known by what you say. You are known by what you say. The words that you say matter. Here, Jesus is picking up where he left off in Luke chapter 11. And uh, when we took our break from Luke, we, we found Jesus who was is, who is having a meal with some Pharisees. And so in Luke chapter 11, uh, 37 is where that kind of starts. It says a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. And that's where everything kind of breaks loose. So Jesus is asked to dine at the home of a Pharisee. And in, in a Middle Eastern culture, when you invite somebody over to your house, it's a, it's a request of honor and respect of that individual who's coming over. 
Okay, so Jesus is this guest of honor. He, he's, he's willing to enter in to this Pharisee's house, even though he knows that at this time, which is about the six months before the cross, that the Pharisees have been pretty, been pretty consistent in their hostility against Jesus' ministry. But it's amazing that Jesus is still willing to step in to what could potentially and what actually happens to be a very hostile setting. In verse 37 and 38, we find that, that Jesus comes to dine, but this Pharisee is appalled that Jesus doesn't wash his hands first before he sits down to a meal. So, right out of the gate, things are not going very well. And Jesus will, will, will take the opportunity at this point to now address the Pharisee who invited him over, so as the guest of honor, now to turn to his host and begin to say some pretty antagonistic words. Jesus will talk about how these Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of greed and wickedness. Now, now just ima imagine in your mind's eye. No one has begun to eat yet. Probably people haven't even begun to sit down yet. And Jesus, in knowing the heart of this Pharisee, now capitalizes on the opportunity to confront this Pharisee and the rest of the Pharisees in the room about his true religious nature. To the extent that Jesus is saying, you're just a pretender. You look good on the outside, but I know what's really going on in your heart. You are vile. You are defiling. You are wicked. You are ungodly. I know better. I, I know how you're pretending, and I know what's really true of your life. Can you imagine being in, in that kind of dinner situation and, and, and cutting the, the tension with a knife, the awkwardness that that is going to begin to create among your guests and, and the other people who are gathered around this table? Well, that Jesus doesn't stop there, okay? If you thought that was enough, Jesus is not done. So that in verse 40, Jesus calls them all fools. You're idiots. You're fools. How can you be so blind? Then in verses 42 and 43 and 44, he actually curses them. He pronounces woes over these people who've been invited to dinner. And then in verses 41 and 42, he calls out their hypocrisy. You do one thing, but the truth is you're really this over here. He calls out the inconsistency of their life. And then in verse 44, he calls them a grave. You guys think you're religiously alive? You're actually spiritually dead. And by the way, people are going to walk over your tombs as if you don't even matter. Can you begin to appreciate and understand the, the, the pressure of that situation? And so the lawyers speak up. Who, it's another word for the scribes. The lawyers speak up and say, well, um, Jesus, in saying these things, you offend us too. Well, Jesus says, if you want the direct approach, let me 
then speak to you directly, lawyers and scribes. Woe to you as well. You are just as full of hypocrisy as the Pharisees are. The intensity of emotions are boiling. The fists are clenching. The teeth are gritting. The pressure is rising. The faces are flushed. The anger and the fury and the frustration in that room is at an intensity you probably never experienced. And, and it doesn't say if Jesus actually ate the meal with them, you can only imagine that now there's a request for an exit strategy. So what do you expect? What do you suppose is gonna happen in a situation or after a situation like that? Well, we find what happens in Luke chapter 11, 53 and 54. It says, as he went away from them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provo uh, provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So if the antagonism and opposition of Jesus up to this point was aggressive, now it was an all-out war. The battle lines have been drawn. And these scribes and Pharisees are out to put Jesus down, to discredit his ministry, and ultimately to destroy him, which is going to happen in just a few months from this occasion. So this is the setting of this situation. Now these Pharisees are dogging Jesus Jesus' steps everywhere he goes. And Jesus, in this situation in Luke chapter 12, with these massive crowds, thousands of people, so many, uh, by the way, that they're stumbling over one another, and now Jesus takes this opportunity to address his disciples and anyone in the crowd who can hear. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What they cover up will be revealed. What they hide will be known. What they say in the dark will be heard in the light. What they whisper in private will be shouted on the housetops. And here we find a direct, targeted, public assault of Jesus on the Pharisees. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is desiring to clear the obstacles for these Pharisees, so they come to terms with what stands before, between them and a relationship with God. And that is, they have pledged their allegiance to themselves and to the religious system and not pledged allegiance to God. And Jesus addresses them with this analogy of leaven. Leaven, of course, is that ingredient that it goes into dough. It, it permeates. It creates an effect. It's subtle at first, but everything in that loaf will change. That dough will change over time. Nothing is unaffected. And everyone who will follow the Pharisees and their teaching will also experiencing, will experience the devastating consequences of that life, of that hypocrisy, of that rebellion against God. The Pharisees themselves were not the leaven but their teaching and their life was the leaven that Jesus refers to. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 16, 6, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And then the disciples will, will finally come to understand in verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled, Jesus says. The, the things that are covered will be revealed. The things that are hidden will be known. Whatever is said in the dark will be heard. Whatever is whispered in private will be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus repeats this truth in Luke chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. He says, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even when he thinks he has, will be taken away. And we might think, in our own mind's eye, that speaking is so insignificant. Speaking is so small. It's the doing that is the problem. And yet what Jesus will identify throughout his ministry is that it is the, the speaking that is the overflow, the evidence of his, what's really in the heart. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that you say in private, the things that you post in the privacy of your own accounts, the things that you do in, in secret, in terms of, of communication with other individuals, the, 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 the times that you spend in secret, maybe watching or listening or viewing certain things that, you, that, that no one knows, the, those secret things reveal and identify the truth about who you are, what you really believe. In a series that we did a couple years ago, the statement that, I, that we made repeatedly was, you are what you believe. And, and what we meant by that is you are not just the person you say you are. The fruit of who you really are is what comes out in how you truly live. So what you truly believe is what's going to show up in how you live. And that's what John will say to the church of Ephesus in 1 John chapter 2. He says, here's how you know that you know me if you keep my commandments. Because it's going to flow out of you. It's going to be natural because you are born of God. The seed of Christ is in you. As children of God, it will propel you in the, in the way of obedience and holiness. But otherwise, the fruit of your mouth will show what you truly believe, and especially those little whispers that no one else hears. That's where the truth of who you are comes through. You are known by what you say. You're also known by what you fear. We find that in verses four to seven. You're known by what you fear. Jesus will say, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Now, Jesus has already identified the Pharisees as those who, are, who, who kill the prophets. In his little lunch or dinner that he had with the Pharisees, he says as much in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 to 51. He says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Therefore, also the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged of this generation. Now, do you get the significance of that statement? That, that all of the prophets of God from the beginning of creation until that point will be charged with, uh, with uh, the offense of putting those prophets to death. Why? Because they put the preeminent prophet to death, Jesus Christ, who... who the previous prophets had spoken of. And so the, the pinnacle of prophecy, the word of God made flesh because they put him on the cross and resisted God himself, they were then guilty of all the prophets that came before and testified of the coming of the prophet king, Jesus Christ. This group of individuals, these Pharisees, were guilty their hypocrisy in contending against God and the truth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus warned the apostles that, that this is what they could expect, that, that this kind of persecution, this kind of, of attack and suffering was, was gonna happen even after his death. He tells them in John chapter 16, verse two. He says, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering sacrifice to God. I'm warning you. Expect this. Recognize that if you align yourself to me, then you're gonna experience the same kind of persecution that I have experienced. Why? Because the life of Christ was a life that essentially judged those who were watching. They, they knew what true holiness was, and so they hated the confrontation even of Jesus' life because his life demonstrated to them how out of step they were with God. And so as believers, we can anticipate the same thing. When our life demonstrates a commitment to holiness and to God, and a world is seeing that life it's an indictment to the way they're living, and so they want to remove that judgment on their life, so they're going to remove you. That's the only way to do it. As we were walking through 1 Peter, Peter will say this time and again. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I want to point out very clearly to you that you can be as, as, as godly as you can be. You can be as kind and loving as you can be. You can do all the things that God has called you to do, and they're still going to speak against you. The world is still going to turn everything upside down and call you an evildoer. You're unloving. You're full of hate. They're going to say that not because you are unloving or are full of hate, 
but because your life is an indictment against the life that they're living. Expect it. It's coming. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, it says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Again, these are people who have aligned their heart and life to the things of God. And what is happening? Well, they're slandered for Christ's sake. They're reviled for Christ's sake. Expect it. That's what the world will do. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 4, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. With respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you. What is your problem? Come on, have a little fun. Quit being such a goody two-shoes. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The world is not going to see things the way that God sees things. They are going to speak against you. They are going to call you an evildoer. They are going to slander you. They are going to revile you and malign you and insult you. Have you pledged your allegiance to Christ in what and who you fear? Are you believing that whatever happens in this life, whatever attacks you might get at work, students standing up for Christ and the school place, and what that might do in terms of distancing you from your friends. And at, in the workplace, the compromises that you're asked to make for the sake of alignment and agreement and commitment to God, what might that do in speaking up for the name of Christ in your workplace? Are we willing to represent Christ in what we fear? Is our fear of God what is going to drive our allegiance and our activity, both in private and then next in public. Because God also cares about us living in public as if Jesus matters. Live in private as if Jesus matters. Live in public as if Jesus matters. Because as Jesus will say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The totality of life in public, in private. It is meant to be comprehensive in every way, in, in private and in public. Jesus will say here in verses 8 and 9, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You are known by what you confess. You are known by what you confess. And then as we turn to verses 10 to 12, we're also known by what we reject. It says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Are you willing to publicly acknowledge your commitment to Jesus Christ? Are you willing to align yourself with God in that way? Are you willing to confess that you are a Christian in that you believe in the Father and the Son, not just some ambiguous deity, some higher power, but that God himself is, is, is the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Remember, Jesus has been making these polarizing statements throughout his ministry. He says in Luke chapter 11, 23, just to back up to the chapter right before, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You cannot remain neutral. And in, even in your passivity, you are aligning yourself against Christ unless you're actively pursuing, actively acknowledging, actively confessing Jesus Christ, you show where your true allegiance lies. You cannot remain neutral. And so, even in not speaking up for Christ, we demonstrate an allegiance to the things that are set against Christ. So we're speaking we're to speak for Christ, which means we're not speaking against a lifestyle. We're not speaking against a right. We're not speaking for a specific purpose or, uh, or platform. Rather, we're speaking for the gospel. Speaking for the gospel is speaking for Christ. Make sure that we are, are, are zeroing in and focusing on the issues that matter. Issues that are eternal, not issues that are temporary. If you're going to be persecuted for the name of Christ, be persecuted for the things that matter. Not a platform, not an agenda, but for Christ, for the gospel, for the things that are certain, for the things that are non-negotiable, for the things that are eternal. Speak for Christ. So we proclaim Christ in how we live. And why does, why does Jesus say that he will proclaim or acknowledge them before the angels? Well, because Jesus is imagining the, the hosts of heaven gathered together with the angels there and everyone who is in the chorus, those who've come to faith in Christ that are represented by all the nations and tribes and tongues and languages. And Jesus says, they belong to me because they have acknowledged me in public. They have aligned themselves to me and with me but we're also known by what we reject. And Jesus will, will speak about blasphemy against the Son of God versus blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What in the world is going on here? Is this the unpardonable sin, and how do we commit it? Well, let's think for a moment. We don't have a whole lot of time, but let's think for a moment. What is the Holy Spirit sent to do? Well, the Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin. So if the Spirit's ministry in your life is tapping you on the shoulder and pointing out in your life the areas in which you are out of step with God and you say, eh, I don't really care. I'll save that to later. I reject you. 
In rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you are rejecting salvation. You're rejecting faith in God. You're rejecting the truth of the scripture that will draw you into fellowship with God. And by rejecting that truth, you are distancing yourself from God himself. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is also to illuminate your heart and mind and the things that are true. To help you perceive and discern the things that are true. We, we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That, that we as believers have the mind of Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is living within believers. So, so believers at times perhaps reject the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. But, but we're not going to lose the Spirit. It's the, he's the guarantee of our salvation until Christ comes. But the Holy Spirit also opens eyes and helps them perceive truth, those who are unsaved. And when they see the truth and walk away, they're rejecting the ministry of the Spirit and thus blaspheming the Spirit and not entering into salvation. The beauty of this passage is that in the company of this massive crowd, even the scribes and the Pharisees that are rejecting the testimony of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when we move our way into Acts chapter six and we see this massive group of scribes and Pharisees coming to faith in Jesus Christ, now finally, they're accepting and receiving the work of the Spirit in their life and God is drawing them into fellowship and forgiving them of the rejection of the Son of God initially so when we reject the ministry of the spirit when we reject the convicting work of the spirit the work of the spirit in, in opening our eyes to truth we will reject the gospel and thus we reject the hope of God in salvation the beauty of both of these sections of scripture is seeing the tenderness of God for his people in, in either situation. The, the tenderness of God that shows up in a God who cares for the sparrows, in a God who has numbered the hairs on our head. God cares about the things we don't even care about. Well, we can't even tell the numbers of hairs on our head, at least most of us. But the tenderness of God in knowing the deepest, most intimate parts of you. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in, in coming alongside and indwelling his people and standing to bear witness and to testify in and through them even in the hardest situations of standing before authorities and having to defend themselves. The Spirit will give them the words to say. The ministry of God for his people is to declare the truth to help us understand the barriers that stand in the way of fellowship with him and to draw us in. And once we belong to him, to know us intimately, to give his Holy Spirit who carries us along and strengthens us for the work that he's called us to do. We are not alone. As believers, we're not alone. We don't have to do this on our own. You don't have to live the Christian life on your own power. As a matter of fact, you cannot live the Christian life on your own power. 
As Paul will say to the church of Philippi, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God works in you to make you what he wants you to be if you allow him to do his work. Submit your heart to God and see what God will do through your private and public acknowledgement of God and confessions of who he is. May we make Jesus known through our lives in totality. Oh Lord, what a wonder it is that you delight in using broken things. Thank you that in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our inadequacy, in spite of our insufficiency, Lord, you delight in shining your glory, your majesty, your greatness, your power, your gospel-working life through us. How can it be? Oh God, might we be faithful in private and in public to the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, God bless you.